I know what you're thinking, punk. You're thinking, did he fire six shots or only five? Now, to tell you the truth, I forgot myself and all this excitement. But being this is a 44 Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the world, and will blow your head clean off, you've got to ask yourself a question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? Welcome to Filmstrip, featuring Ron. It'll be my word against yours. And Jay. I got to know. These podcasts will be spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I'm Ron. This is our review of Dirty Harry, starring Clint Eastwood, Andrew Robinson, Harry Gardino, Rainey Santonio, and John Vernon, directed by Don Siegel, released in 1971 on a budget of $4 million, grossed $35.6 million at the box office, and launched a franchise that spanned for nearly 20 years. And, you know, I looked at it before we, we got to talking here, recording this, Ron, and this is now officially the oldest movie we've ever reviewed on Filmstrip. And it's also the series that spans, well, no, outside of Star Wars, it, it spans the longest time of being relatively continuous. If you take that long break between 83 and, and 99 when, when Star Wars was on break, that one holds the record there for us. But 1971 to 1989, the Dirty Harry films. And I have always been oddly fascinated with these and wanted to... Uh, take a crack at them. And I remember watching these on cable growing up. They were on like TNT and TBS and stuff all the time. And I think I even wound up going to see the Deadpool. I snuck into it at a theater or something in 1989. And, uh, um, I've, oh, wow. yeah, it's, it's long. Yes. Sorry, Carmike cinemas, uh, in, in Florence, but, uh, whatever I bought a ticket to got an extra $3 that day, uh, because I saw the Deadpool, but, uh, yeah, you know, I, I've always been kind of fascinated with the, the dirty, hairy thing. And I think it's every, southern male that was ever remotely into shooting guns you know it was all the, the 44 magnum the, the most powerful handgun in the world it's all built around that that line and the whole go make my day and all that stuff so i wanted to come back and do this series and uh you know was looking for an excuse and said hey you know what this spring good time to, to throw in some dirty hairy before we get into stuff like mad max and some of the other things we're going to do this summer this felt like a a good dovetail before we get into the uh classy films <laughs> yeah, exactly so, but what's your your uh, background on Dirty Harry? Actually, I don't think I have a lot of background on Dirty Harry, uh, except my grandmother used to keep a three fifty seven Magnum under her couch. Uh, <laughs> that's about that's about all I got. I mean, I've seen them all on cable, you know, mm-hmm. lots of times, uh, and I know the uh, iconic lines and and all that stuff. But I think the the thing I recognize Dirty Harry the most for is all the parts where it's been ripped off in other things or made fun of in other things. Yeah, I think that's the, that's the thing about this series is that it, it had such an influence and then it became the thing that was the caricature that has been overdone. And I don't know that we could ever even have this again, right? But it's it's definitely has its moment in, the, in cinema history. 
Yeah, I don't think there's a big demand these days for lone white cop shooting first and asking questions never. Uh, yes, that is absolutely true. And not to, not to make light of serious situations, but you're exactly right. Yeah, I, I, this would not play today. I wrote an article years ago on Blog Critics about films I thought needed a, a, a remake or a reboot. And I threw this one out there. And I think my idea was like Timothy Oliphant or Ryan Reynolds as Dirty Harry. But then I, I even in my own writing, I said, but I don't know that you could pull it off. Like it would have to be a period piece almost because no one would go for this it's very much like it's it's very much a product of that late 60s early 70s uh urban blight crime is out of control uh you know but before crack uh came around and made things super dangerous yeah uh in, in the big cities it definitely feels like oh well this there's no way this could take place now this this had to uh, the seventies was the time that this was meant to take place. Exactly, it, it is a product of the seventies, particularly this story. And we'll talk about you know its aping of what is happening in real life at the time, and then what it influenced in cinema and beyond as we get into it here. But yeah, I, I do think this is a film that is very much a snapshot of its time. And I will say this though, I, what has always attracted me to this beyond the, the you know, banal things of being a child and, and then, you know, a kid that, that thought, you know, guns were cool and stuff like that was Clint Eastwood. I, I grew up on spaghetti westerns. My dad's a big fan of all of those. So I've saw, I've seen all of them. I've seen everything Clint did. And so Clint as a cop always seemed to be like, yeah, the next evolution. This is, you know, the, the man with no name ultimately got married and had a lot of children, or maybe he just had a few along the way. And through his descendants out West, one of them ended up being an inspector in San Francisco. I mean, it's kind of the same, the same thing. That, that, that makes a lot of sense. Then it becomes like its own metaverse. Like, mm-hmm the uh, dirty with no name metaverse or whatever. <laughs> yeah. I, there is a good subreddit to be started on that. I'm just going to go ahead and say that that needs to happen at, at the end of this series, maybe, but you know what? Let's get into the film though and talk about dirty here because this is so old. I bet there's a lot of people in our audience that haven't seen this or don't really know what it's about and, and wouldn't remember it unless they had, you know, again, been exposed to it by us. So I'm going to go through, do a quick plot summary, and then we can talk about the movie. So Dirty Harry Callahan, as he's known, is a hard-edged San Francisco inspector who seemingly can't even finish lunch without fooling a bank robbery with his classic 44 Magnum handgun. And when a psychotic calling himself Scorpio goes on a killing spree, Harry and his new partner, Chico, are assigned to hunt him down under the watchful and critical eyes of their lieutenant and the mayor. Callahan catches the killer, but ignores his own rights and sees him released on technicalities. And on release, Scorpio kidnaps a busload of children and demands a ransom. Uh, The mayor goes along with the game and orders Callahan not to interfere, but disgusted, Harry intercepts the bus, takes out Scorpio, Scorpio for good and tosses his badge away as credits roll. And that's kind of the short version of what happens here. And I, I want to get into it in a little more detail with you. But the thing that gets me about this film it, it, from the outset is the entire motif of it. There's something about 70s films that they all, and it's not just the grainy film, it's they have a look and a feel from the soundtrack to the cinematography to just the way the characters walk around and are staged that is unique to that era of cinema. Well, it doesn't hurt the fact that the uh, soundtrack is done by the great uh, Lalo Schifrin, who did the soundtrack to Bullet. Yes. And it's a great, like, orchestral funk kind of soundtrack. Yeah, that's a good way of saying it, orchestral funk. You know, like having that kind of a, I don't know how to, yeah, just have a real neat, 
feel to it. Like I always remember the, the original Rocky had this weird kind of jazzy, funky orchestra, you know, soundtrack to it and stuff. But the other thing is Don Siegel, the director here. I mean, having done things like invasion of the body snatchers in 1956, which is one of my favorite films of all time to stuff like escape from Alcatraz, the shootist. I mean, this guy, you know, did a lot of, of, good movies and directed a lot of really cool stuff. Everything from some of those spaghetti Western types up through, you know, things like Dirty Harry. Now he has a real touch with the camera that, that is unique. And I think it gives it a real style. It's, it's just cool. Yeah. There were definitely a lot of moments in the film where I was like, man, that is a really cool shot. The, uh, the helicopter shot, uh, towards the end when, Mm -hmm. uh, after, or in the middle when Callahan, uh, catches the guy and the old, uh, what looks like to be the old uh, Oakland Alameda, uh, yeah, old Raiders football stadium. That's a great, great shot. The I, I love the way it just pulls back, but it just pulls back and it keeps pulling back, and it's it's kind of a seamless uh, pan out, or uh, I guess it would be a zoom out because it can't pan in a helicopter. <laughs> yeah, well, you can bank, but I don't know that you can pan. But, you know, good good point. I think we got to talk too though about San Francisco because it's as much a character in this film and really in this series as anything else. And you mentioned bullet in there. I, I got a lot of bullet off of this too. And then also going forward, I got a lot of death wish in this too. I think those, these, those, those three films have a, have a kinship to them that they kind of all exist in the same universe in some ways. Yeah. That's a, that's a thing I made in my notes. I said, dirty Harry is the connector between bullet and death wish just from the score but also, like stylistically, you know, Bullet is a is a cop who's doing things his own way. Uh, Dirty Harry takes that even farther, and and then you know, um, good old uh, Charles Bronson isn't even a cop. He's just like he's an architect. Who's he's an architect with yeah. he, he's an architect out for vengeance with you know a giant handgun. Exactly. Yeah. I, th- the thing to me that that always always intrigued me about this film and it's one of those things that draws me into it is this is really this a uh, bullet before and then like uh the french connection and stuff those are the the birth of the anti-hero death wish is in there too right i mean mm-hmm. it's the, the 70s anti-hero is so prevalent here and that's what dirty harry is i mean he's he's doing what you feel like you know we need to have this done you got to have somebody out there that you know will just take the things in his own hands but he's a lawman too and even he struggles with the idea of that he has to go beyond what you know maybe is it will he has to go beyond what is legal to be able to get the job done it's a it's a really interesting take i don't I just got to wonder, I mean, I wasn't alive for any of the 70s, so I don't know, but I just got to wonder what was in, in America, what was going on in America at that time to make this, like, everyone's wish-fulfillment figure. Well, I, I, you know, I wasn't alive for a lot of it, that, only the, you know, the last few years of it, but I haven't seen a lot of the cinema and, and listened to a lot of discussion about it. It man, it was post-Vietnam, you know, that, that was happening. Matter of fact, Vietnam wasn't even mm-hmm. over at this point. You had that. You had uh, coming up, you would have Watergate, but you already had distrust of the government. You know, you'd had Kent State. You'd had all the civil rights uh action in the, in the South in the 60s. You're coming off the heels of that. Um, you also had... You know, mass inflation. You had trouble in Iran. You had, you had this, that. I mean, it was a lot of things. So there, there was no, there was no bright side. I mean, you had gas shortages and uh, all this other stuff that it's 
it's one of the things that made Star Wars such a hit was because it was such an escape from how sucky everything was. And it was also right there at the time when all of that went away, too. But, it, uh, yeah, I think Dirty Harry is is definitely a part of all of that. And the way it can exist is because it it's what people lived every day back then. I mean, I remember talking to my dad a lot about this when you're watching this movie growing up. And he said, oh, yeah, this it was horrible. He said, this is just how people felt, though. So it's kind of like a uh, the world is out of control. Uh, we need some way to control it. Yeah, and, and sometimes that has to be someone that goes above and beyond. It's the man with no name again, that whole convention. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. The thing is, though, we don't even meet Harry for a while here. We open up with our killer, Scorpio, Andrew Robinson. Now, I know him. He's done a ton of television. Like He's been on every show in the world. But I kind of always know him as two things. He was uh, the dad in the original Hellraiser, if you've ever seen that. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. He, he, will, he, he, he has some iconic lines in there, come to daddy and, and all that kind of stuff. And then uh, he was also another cop uh, oddly enough Randy uh, Santonio uh, was in this one too uh, a little Sylvester Stallone joined the 80s called Cobra where he's, oh, he's oh. the uptight cop <laughs> oh man that's awesome yeah Cobra yeah that's so, another great flick of the time period yes it is and that's another Golden Globus joint too I think that's probably on our short list somewhere <laughs> down the line oh yeah to get into that but yeah but I know him from that you know and the thing is is to hear him talk he was like the biggest peacenik hippie they could find so he's totally cast against type to play this uh, Zodiac ripoff. I mean, that's what this is, right? This guy is supposed to be like the Zodiac killer, which that was very much a part of the times. Yeah, it's it's a flavor. It's like Zodiac mixed with uh, uh, what's that guy's name? Uh, Charles Manson. Char- Charles Manson mixed with Charles Whitman. Yes, yes, it's Charles. Yes, Charles Whitman, Manson, Zodiac, all of that. Particularly the taunting of the police. I think that's the Zodiac part, and also why they go with the Scorpio line. And the uh, but what's funny about that is that all of this was initially concocted as a Frank Sinatra joint. Can you imagine that as Sinatra as Callahan? No, not at all. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's yeah, that's definitely would have been a terrible, uh, terrible casting decision. Yeah, I mean, they, they went from, like, Sinatra to, like, Robert Mitchum and Burke Lancaster, who both turned it down, and then they ultimately ended up with Clint doing it. And now, now, Robert Mitchum, I could see that. Yeah, Mitchum, I could, I could see it. Apparently, he thought it was a piece of trash. <laughs> so, like, he, he hated it. And, I, I mean, think about it from their point of view. If you, I mean, the dialogue in this movie is abhorrent. I mean, even for the 70s, it's terrible. I mean, just the the awful things people say to each other, and the way it's all staged, and just the the very clinical nudity. Like it's not titillating; it's it's very like sickening the way that it's played here and stuff. And mm-hmm. I, it's it would be I can see why you know respected actors would go, yeah, I ain't doing that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I could definitely see that too. But like as I was watching the film because uh, it's been a long time since I've actually sat down and watched Dirty Harry. Uh, as I was watching it, I was kept noticing, well, this is the part of the film where Canon would insert some nudity. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, yeah. So, I mean, as much as much as clinical as the nudity there was, there, there was plenty of opportunity for titillation that they refused to take. Mm-hmm. And I, I actually like that it's not necessarily there for, you know, fun. Right, yeah. I think that's what makes it different is it's not there for fun. It's not even the opening scene, the girl in the swimming pool. I mean, she's she's clothed, but she that's very alluring and stuff. And I mean, she just gets shot through the back. 
I mean, that we're open up to that scope shot and all that. I mean, again, it's another one of those grand shots, and it it's really disturbing. I mean, you open up with that and you see Callahan. Yeah, I think that's the thing that. Yeah, I think that's the thing that uh, that makes the film work. It's it it, it stays so detached from everything. Not uh, Callahan, mm-hmm. you know the the rot is inherent. The the rot goes all the way to the core. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. So to speak, you know the way the cops talk about the the victims. Uh, you know the way the legal system lets them go. Uh, you know all that stuff. Oh yeah, look, it, it's all it's just this. Ah, what am I trying to say? This crumbling empire from the inside out. Like there's, you can see why a killer like this could rise in this area in the city, and the mayor has no backbone. And they, you know, I love though that they are reluctant to give Callahan the case because, and all they do is allure to some kind of a shooting of a naked man with a butcher wife chasing a woman <laughs> the year before. Yeah. And I'm like, man, that sounded like a good story. You know, and that's that's funny because it made yeah. me think of the uh, the scene in the original Naked Gun where <laughs> Leslie Nielsen is talking to the mayor. Yeah, I think that's what the Naked Gun is ripping off, actually. Oh, I know it is. <laughs> yeah, but. so but no, you're right. But but the, the when we really meet Callahan in full is he's trying to eat lunch at a local diner and a bank robbery breaks out at his you know right over his shoulder and I mean almost without thinking about it he just turns around and pulls out that cannon. And start shooting the the suspects. Yeah, who are who are not like standing away from everyone. They're in a crowd of people. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, yeah, he is firing off that very loud weapon in in broad daylight. I mean, again, this is something that you could never imagine these days, right? And then that iconic scene where he's got one down, and it, and he's like, you know, the whole bit about did I fire six times or five? Do you feel lucky? And he's holding that gun on him. And what's even better is at the end of it is that, you know, the, the guy gives up basically. And he says, wait a minute, I got to know, you know, <laughs> and as it turns out, yeah, he fired six times. So well, let's talk about the 44 Magnum, though, because if San Francisco is a character in a Dirty Harry movie, that gun is a character in a Dirty Harry movie. There's something about it, though, that is just perfect for like the 70s machismo, right? I mean, it is oh, yeah. the, the ultimate man and the ultimate man's weapon would be a gun that could, quote, blow your head clean off. Mm-hmm. And, and it's it's almost overkill, right? Because why on earth would anyone have to carry one of those around? Every other cop in this movie, it, it should be noted, is carrying like a 38 snub nose revolver, which is standard detective issue stuff for that, that time. Callahan, on the other hand, is, is literally yeah, like carrying the, a cannon. Yeah, they've all got like the Colt police positive, yeah. you know the detective special mm-hmm. and he's got the gun he would hand down to his son, Rick Grimes. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't even thought about that, <laughs> but yeah, I, I don't know. I like the whole scene though. The action scene. And I think seventies action scenes, man, there's, there's nothing like them, right? Cause it was all practical effects. You've got cars crashing through windows. You've got red paint for blood, which is hilarious when <laughs> you see it splattering across things and breaking glass. <laughs> I think breaking glass is a trope of the seventies. Like it, you want to, you know, show violence. It's breaking glass. Well, I think it's. I think it ties back to the uh, broken window theory of uh, urban decay. Yeah, I, yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't thought or, about it that way. Or I'm just, le- or I'm just reading way too much into this movie. <laughs> no, I think it's there to read. Honestly, I think, I don't think Siegel and Eastwood were trying to make a pulp 
knockoff. I think they saw something in this that was worth treating with a little bit of respect. Now, whether the series stays there or not, we'll get there in the next films. But this one in particular, the first one, I, I think it takes itself very seriously. And, and it wants you to take it seriously, too. It's easy to look at it now and kind of go, oh, gosh, can you imagine that could even happen today? But if you just sit back and watch it and just absorb it, it, it washes over you pretty pretty cleanly. I mean, it's pretty easy to tell what they're getting after here. Yeah, it's de- it's definitely a movie that's got some uh, stuff going on under the surface, uh, and it's definitely it definitely is very careful to not go for the dumb pleasure aspect. Mm-hmm. I mean, even you know, they they do some fun things. I noticed with the sound design mm-hmm. uh, and with the, the score. The score is great. It's very tense and very propulsive, but they also know when to not have any music at all. Like during the uh, the chase scene through the uh, stadium, mm-hmm. it's just the sound of like labored breathing and footfalls and gunshots. It's brilliant. Yeah, it's it puts you in that moment. Like they like you say when they have him running around the city later on or whatever. It and you hit that on right too. It was the home of the 49ers and the and the Oakland Raiders. You know for a while, old Kazar Stadium. When they have him doing all of that, it, it it vacillates between you've got music to get you from point to point, but when they're in the scene and the scenery, it's just the sound of the men running after each other. Which I think is fantastic, and it's part of using the city as your your landscape. Michael Mann does this with L.A. a lot in in his films. Uses the landscape as part of the story and the characters, and we talked about that with Heat. And I think this one is is just part of it's. Yeah, it comes from this tradition. You know, the filmmakers that could use the the places they were as part of it. I mean, what does everybody remember about Bullet? Right, the the fastback Mustang and that chase through the streets. Right. Yes, it's all part of that, and they do some of that here too, right? So, but what do you make of the rookie partner here, though, Rainy Santoni, the the Chico Gonzalez character? I mean, aside from the uh, the terrible name. Well, yeah, it is it is an awful name. So. It, it's it's definitely a uh, feels like a '70s diversity name written mm-hmm. by people who didn't really know much about uh, Hispanics. Yeah, but oh, I actually, yeah. I like the actor. Yeah. Uh, I, I think he's really he's good for the part, and I like that there's a uh, level-headed companion to uh, Dirty Harry. Um, and this is something I'm glad you caught that. This is something that is going to reoccur throughout the series. This idea of pairing Callahan up with somebody that can balance him out. I mean, they they'll do this in every film except for one of them, where they they go out of their way to pair him up with somebody to try to get him. And in this case, it's the this kid's fresh out. This guy's fresh out of college, and he's you know he's a police officer, but he's you know he's a sociologist, and he's you know he's the younger Vincent Hanna. Is what he is. He's he's just young and you know inexperienced, but he's smart. As where Harry is, you know, street smart, right? Yeah, it's they're definitely it's definitely a it's uh, to me it kind of reads like a commentary on America's changing workforce. Mm-hmm. I guess you could say, like, I mean, you know, Dirty Harry didn't go to college. No, Dirty Dirty Harry probably barely got out of high school. Yeah, yeah. You never get a lot of Callahan's background, but I always took him as this guy that probably was, you know, dropped out, got his GED or something, or maybe just got through high school long enough and joined the army because it was either that or go to jail. And he wound up fighting in like you know Korea or something, and then came back and became a cop because well that was better than you know lugging boxes on the dock, you know that kind of guy. 
Yeah, and, and this guy is educated. He's stable. He's got his college degree. You know, he's got a wife. He's got yeah, a oh, wife and a fan. You know, he's starting a family. Yeah, that's the thing that we do get a great scene. It's near the end of the film. It's after Chico gets hurt and is basically convalescing and has decided to leave the force and just go teach. That his wife is having this whole conversation with Callahan, and Callahan reveals that I was married and. The next thing out of his mouth I thought was going to be, but my wife couldn't take it and left me. But we find out that, no, his wife died in a car wreck. And it was it was a car accident, and it jaded him in a very serious way. And I think that adds another layer to the character. Because the thing about Dirty Harry is that all most people know when you say Dirty Harry is the caricature, the gun, the cheesy lines, all that stuff, right? But in mm-hmm. this first film, he's very much a, a real person that has a real attitude about things and – is doing what he considers to be the best job possible. Right. And, you know, and without the, without letting the entanglements of the system get in his way. Right. Cause it is at a time when, like we said, the system is so corrupt that he can get away with doing things like this. Right. Yeah. He's definitely, um, doing things his own way. I mean, it's kind of the, the detective who it's the source of the detective who plays by his own rules uh, to a great extent. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think without Dirty Harry and Chico, you wouldn't have Riggs and Murtaugh. No, exactly. No, you would never have Riggs and Murtaugh. You would never have Miami Vice. You, you know, none of that stuff. You, you, you've got to have the archetype of that. And so this, the idea of these two odd couple, if you will, as the, the cops, but the fact that Chico actually brings something to the table. He seems to get what Harry's like. I mean, and having to deal with it, they have to do this whole bit where they talk somebody off the roof and all this stuff, right? And mm-hmm. there's this running gag of like, yeah, now you know why they call him Dirty Harry. He's, he gets every bad job in the in the you know force. And that's what that's uh, Martin Riggs all the way, right? I mean that's that was his whole character in Lethal Weapon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What'd you make of Scorpio now, though? Because we got to talk about that dude. He—he's uh, a very strange uh, villain, uh, as, as far as villains go. Mm-hmm. I couldn't tell if he was supposed to be uh, like. Well, clearly he's mentally ill. Yeah. Or there's some sort of mental illness, or like a drug problem, or something going on there. Uh, but I couldn't make if he was supposed to be like a hippie gone bad, like a Charles Manson type or just a, a nut with uh, longish hair. I, th- I think he's just a nut with the hair. Honestly, I, the way I've always read him. And I think it's the way Robinson plays him too, is mm-hmm. that he is, he only lives for the thrill of the mayhem and the kill. Like he does this whole ransom bit, but the way he lays that out for the cops and stuff, it's it's the most impossible terms. Like I don't think he ever cares if they give him the money or not. He just wants to get them scrambling so he can go shoot another, you know, black person or a Catholic priest or whatever he says, right? I mean, he's just he's just there for the mayhem. Definitely uh, kind of resonates in the performance. It kind of makes me think of the uh, the crazy uh, the the bad guy from uh, the Warriors. Mm. The uh, guy who clinks the bottles together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I, I don't know if it's just the, the hair or just the kind of uh, deranged laughter that they both uh, undertake at, at certain points of the film. Uh, yeah, no, that's a great I hadn't thought about that, but that's a, an excellent point. And those are definitely films of the same ilk. Yeah, it's, cl- it's clearly uh, that guy's – it's clearly Scorpio's son. 
Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that Scorpio's kid. He just made it all the way to what New York. So, <laughs> so no, I I like the Scorpio character though as a bad guy. Like I said, because it it's very easy that this could have just been like you know giving no lines and he just shoots people and he talks you know on the phone and it's very just blah right. But there's so many layers to him because we get to see him in so many places. Like he gets to walk around. We see him later on. He he does this whole like robbery of a liquor store where he's talking to the guy and he he does this thing to set up Callahan too where he. You know, one he's he you know chases Gonzalez and he ends up wounding him along the way. And the I think the most evil thing is that he's a multi-layered killer. He's not just a shooter. You know, he kidnaps a girl and he sends in part of her clothes and he demands a ransom and buries her alive and she ends up dying because they don't get to her in time. And I mean, he's a sadist all the way. He he uh, overtakes a bus of school children, which brought me back to Invasion USA, by the way, and uh, that whole scene. But I mean, he just it's like every bad thing this guy could possibly do, he does. But then there's moments like with the school bus thing, he's got the, the bus driver on the phone and this little girl tries to get off. He's like, not now, honey. And he puts her back on the bus and he's you know, sing row, row, row your boat while I'm about to blow your head off and, you know, beating that one kid for wanting his mother. And I mean, it's he's messed up. He's like the Joker's grandfather almost. It, yeah, it's I think I, re, I, I really like that the character's not just, uh, you know, evil all of the time. Mm-hmm. But in a way, he is evil all of the time. He just yeah. knows how to put on the front. Yeah, yeah. It's it's like he's always bad. He's just degrees of it that get worse and worse. And I'm with you too, the the mental health angle. I think this that's also what they're playing up here. And this is in a time when we knew so much less about mental health and mental illness than we do now that this would this person would have been written off and you know, for all kinds of different reasons. Uh, by society and by everyone else. And the thing I think is most interesting about him is we never get his entire backstory. You know, it is a mystery to how he got to this point. When we meet him, he's shooting people on the rooftop. You know, we don't ever get him crying about, you know, where he came from and all this. And you can't trust anything he ever says either because he lies so much. Oh, yeah. It's definitely uh, a very unsettling uh, take on the character. I like that. Yeah, like you said, I like that we don't get his backstory and that his backstory doesn't even really matter. No, I mean, the only thing they ever even get, Callahan breaks into his apartment to, to search it, but they can't use any of it because it was done without a warrant, we find out later. And, you know, so, I mean, we, we know nothing about this guy, except that he will go to the extreme to get what he wants. And I think the best example of that is when he pays the guy to beat him up so he can frame it on Callahan. That I was like, there are people that you can just pay to beat the crap out of you. Apparently so. I mean, uh, I mean, I mean, it's like they had like an arranged meeting. I thought he's there to buy a gun. He's got to buy drugs. I'd forgotten about this, and he's like, no, I, I want you to beat the crap out of me. <laughs> okay. So. That was that was a very fun scene because yeah. the it was it, I liked I enjoyed that the guy was reticent to do it until he started with the insults. Yeah, exactly. He started t- talking trash about him and and all this stuff and it, it works out that one expletive with like 12 extra syllables and that stuff. Mm. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's really weird. I mean, but, but again, it's all to set Harry up because the point is, and what we, we've got to get to here and talk about is that we're working up to a final scene is that Callahan has, has played along and done what he's been asked to do. They've been on several stakeouts. He's, uh, he chased him once across uh, the stadium and shot him. And when he couldn't get him to confess, the guy sitting there and, 
crying like I mean just the weirdest cry ever I've ever seen out of a male actor oh, just yeah. begging for and Callahan steps on his bloody leg you know to try to get him to confess to tell him where the girl is that's all the impetus for pushing Harry over the line where he realizes I, I'm not going to be able to use conventional ways to get to this guy yeah because it's clearly this guy is is not going to he's not going to fall for a good cop bad cop no, not at all. I mean, no interrogation can work. And and it is Callahan that he seems to be fixated upon. And I wanted to ask you, is it because he sees in Callahan like a, a good adversary that he's into this cat and mouse with him because he knows this guy will go above and beyond to try to get him? I think so. That's that's how I kept uh, – that's how I uh, kind of read it. Um, it it's pretty clear that uh, – you know, Call- Callahan may not have the college degree, but there's, you know, he's clever. Oh, big time! Yeah, he's and he's <laughs> and he's definitely you know clever enough to be a match for this guy, both mentally and in terms of his propensity for violence. You know? <laughs> yeah, he'll definitely ratchet it up a little bit. So, and that's the thing is that they finally get to the point where. Callahan, you know, now has been ordered, you've got to stop following this guy. You've got to leave him alone and let it go, you know. And we see Scorpio steal the gun from the liquor store, and then he kidnaps the school bus load of children and demands another ransom and to have a plane so he can leave the country. And the mayor, of course, plays along with this. And they've already asked Callahan before to be the delivery man on this. And this time he says, no, I'm not doing it. And I wondered what you thought of that, because I, I think it was at that point he realized, I'm tired of playing games with these people. I'm just going to go shoot this guy, and y'all can deal with me later. That that's uh, that's a lot of how I read it as well. Um, I I read it as that's like, well, you tried this game once. We did it your way, and your way failed. Now it's time to do it my way. Yeah, exactly. And and uh, what is great to me is that Scorpio's on this bus, and this is a great scene on the bus. He's got the bus driver driving. He's got the kids singing "Row, Row, Row Your Boat," and he's you know of course going crazy on them and all this stuff. And as they take you know they turn off the interstate and and the freeway, and standing on this wood bridge is Harry Callahan in in his best man with no name pose. Like all I needed was one of those Leone music cues right there. <laughs> The, uh, the rattle of that jawbone thing or whatever. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, because he's just standing there in his in his cop suit with his sunglasses, you know, just like, you know, c- coming this way or whatever. It's like, there's only so much rope on the end of this for you or, or whatever it is. And he, and he jumps off the bridge on top of the bus in this great scene. That's another one of these great actions. These things I miss, you know, in today, because all that today would be CGI and, and, and some of that works well enough, but there's nothing like seeing a guy actually jump on the bus and it's ride not, it. It's not just a guy. That was Clint Eastwood. You know what I'm yeah. The, and that's the other thing. Yeah. It's actually Clint. Like that's, you know, Clint at this time was, I think he was in his forties, you know? So which, he, he was like uh 41 or 42. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, he's, I mean, he's, I mean, he's not a spring chicken now by any means, but he certainly wasn't then. And he just jumped right on the bus. Like, yeah, whatever. And I love though, that they, they had this whole scene where Scorpio is shooting him through, you know, shooting at him through the, uh, the roof and, Ultimately, the thing crashes, and they have another great chase scene through the rock quarry. And it it's the best example, too, outside of that night scene of the chase where there's no music, where it's just the the, the feet and the, the men breaking around the different ends. There's just something really, like, uh, 
pulse pounding, I guess, mm-hmm. about that 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 the way they film that about this the the use of the lack of the use of sound. It's like it takes it from just being like oh a movie chase like here's some waka jawaka music in the background what? to like <laughs> yeah go ahead to to like uh, you know um, actually chasing someone or being chased by someone well it puts the audience in the this the chase scene is what it does because it's what it would feel like and sound like and you know how you would feel as you're chasing someone it puts you on the edge of your seat to make you run and you got to think back in the 70s too this wasn't something that you saw every day on your local television show you now you turn on television it's twice as exciting as some of the action scenes you see in movies right Mm -hmm. there wasn't any of that (laughs) this time you didn't get that i mean you you know the action scenes didn't pass for this at that moment so you you, uh, I, I don't know. I, it gives it a, a, a real, uh, a real beat at a pace that ratchets up the tension because at any time around any corner could be one of them ready to shoot the other one. You know, that's the thing mm-hmm. is they stop long enough to shoot at each other every now and then. Yeah. It's, it's definitely a, uh, a running gun battle and it's, it, it's one of my favorite, uh, parts of the movie, I think. Yeah. Just because it's, it's executed so well. But it's not uh, not overdone, I guess you could say. Absolutely. And it builds to a real crescendo on the pier when Scorpio grabs the, the kid and has the gun you know, pointed at his head and is you know, threatening to shoot him. And I love how Callahan stands there and then like gets a round off and hits him in the shoulder so the kid can run away and Scorpio's down. I, you, I, I would have never thought, I was like, man, you talk about gutsy at this point. He's just decided to go ahead and shoot the hostage. You know? <laughs> I mean... <laughs> well, I mean, with the that forty four Magnum, he ought to be able to put one through a child into an adult <laughs> if, he really, if he really had to. I, I think he whizzed it by the kid, but uh, yeah, sure. But he pretty no, well... That was, my, that, that was the one thing that took me out of the movie earlier, except uh, for the fact that he... Uh, Scorpio spends the rest of the movie with a limp uh, yeah, he gets, where he got shot in the leg. Yeah, he gets stabbed and shot in the leg the same night, yeah. Yeah, well, I was just thinking, if you really shot him in the, the leg with a that forty four Magnum, there wouldn't be a ton of meat left. Yeah, unless, like, on the, unless he just grazed him good. I mean, you, I, you were never really told how good he got him. You're right. So, but... Uh, and when he, and granted, he shot him from 50 yards away when he shot him. And the second time, he's maybe 10 feet away from him. Which is, it's a wonder he didn't spin him off the dock at that point. But they had they had their final showdown, and it's a it's a refrain to that that earlier one with the bank robbery. You know, the whole oh, I kind of lost count and all the excitement myself. You know, and and all this stuff, and uh, and you know, you got to ask yourself, are you lucky? And what's different about this one though? And I love the way Clint plays it. And, it, and now it's parodied to death, and it's it's kind of sad. But if you watch it in its context, the first time he says that, he's being a smartass to a guy he's he's got the drop on. You know, mm-hmm. this time the way he's saying it, and he's gritting his teeth and all this stuff, like he's pissed. He's like, please let me pull the trigger, dare me one time. You know. And I I like the difference in the performance of the the mirror of that, but how it is it is ramped up at the end here for Callahan. Like it's personal. Yeah, Clint Clint I don't think Clint gets enough credit for being as good of an actor as he is. Oh, I agree. Because I mean he's great in this movie. Like it's not nearly as flat as it could have been in the wrong hands. Like it's not nearly as one dimensional of a character. You know. Yeah. 
there's there's definitely I mean like we said with the film having more going on than than what's on the surface there's more I don't know pain or uh, something helplessness uh, frustration going on under the surface of you know this character who could very easily become the uh, death wish killing machine. Well, he could become the Terminator. He could become anything that just you know, Rambo, you know, any of the, the 80s tropes, just this walk in and mow the room down kind of person, which is, you know, is the caricature of Dirty Harry in popular culture. But this film, that's not what he is at all. He's got a lot of heart. And, and he's also, he's human enough to allow himself to be pissed off in the moment, you know. Mm-hmm. And Scorpio has nothing to say. He just reaches for the gun. And my question to you was, you know, all the times he had gotten the drop on Callahan, had been able to get out of it, did he know I might as well go for the gun anyway because he's going to shoot me no matter what I do? Or was he actually thinking he could get out of it one more time? I think you could definitely uh, say that he thought he was going to get away one more time. I, I mean – even knowing that this guy has got a hand cannon, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in, you know, three feet away from your face, there's always that chance that maybe he did fire six shots. Yeah. You know, maybe you've got that, or maybe he just realized that this there was no better ending for him. Mm-hmm. You, you've got the choice of, of die a, a villain or become, you know, just another dude in prison. Exactly. And uh, you know what I love, though? And it's it's subtle in this, but what you realize is that Callahan knows the answer to that question both times he asks it. He knows he's out of bullets at the bank, but he's just daring the guy. You know, do you really want to take mm-hmm. a chance on this? And then this time, he knows he's got one left. And he's, you know, because he's like, I fired four, I just put one in his shoulder, I know I got one left. You know, and he's, he know, he already knows the answer to it. And, and the thing is, though, the way it's played in the film is there's so much gunfire back and forth and the way they work the echoes, because there's no way a P-38 and a 44 sound anything alike. But in a right. place in a place where sound reverberates differently, maybe you couldn't tell who was shooting what because that P-38's got eight in it. And so, mm-hmm. you know, and you so you're like, wait a minute, who, who shot when? You know, it is confusing. And I love that for the audience. If you've never seen it, you don't know. Does he really have another one? But of course, what you know is Callahan knows he's got another bullet. And he puts it square in the middle of his chest and blows him off the dock. And it's a great death scene, too. I mean, he doesn't just sink into the water. He kind of floats there, and you watch him die in the water. It's really harrowing in some ways, but it's, like you said, it's the perfect ending for that character. Yeah, it's definitely uh, it's definitely a very intense death scene. Um, the one thing you can say is that they don't pull any uh, punches with the, the demise. It's not a neat, clean hero victory scene. Yeah, no, you know it's not because the cops are on their way, you know, and and he knows, you know, what's going to happen to him as a result of his actions. He, that's why he throws the badge in the water at the end, I think, is because he knows, eh, eh no so much for that, right? Cuz I mean, there's no way he can go back after that. Right. Well, um that was the whole thing uh that I was reading in the background cuz I went and dug into the background of the movie again. Uh and it was a whole thing of discussion between him and uh between him and the director mm-hmm. about uh just how they would end uh and what that ended up meaning and uh now I've lost it of course. <laughs> well, what I mean, what did you read it as? How did you read the ending? I read it as him realizing that uh, 
how I read it was he realized that he had gone beyond the law, that there were limits to the power that that badge had for him, mm-hmm. uh, that it was still something that, you know, I didn't read it as him renouncing his job or renouncing even the, uh, the thing of justice. I, I, I read, I read it as him casting off the system. Mm-hmm. Uh, See, in, in a sense, I agree with that, and it's why I'm surprised in these later sequels he's still an inspector with the SFPD. I always thought this would be like you know when Shaft became the uh, you know private hour. This would be when Dirty Harry became you know his own boss essentially, and that mm-hmm. it'd be interesting to re-explore because I don't remember if in the subsequent films that they explain how the heck he still has a job and why he's still given a, a pretty long leash with, with a lot of it. So, but well, uh, he gets results. Yeah, this, this is true. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. And times do change, but we'll talk about those in the uh, subsequent sequels. And we're at the part of the podcast where it's time to get final thoughts, recommendations, popcorn ratings. So Ron, what are yours for dirty Harry? Oh, uh, I got to say that I got to give it an, an extra large popcorn. It, it holds up way better than I would have expected it to hold up, uh, especially after, what, 40 years? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, about 40 years or more. I mean, it, it it doesn't fall into the trap of being slow like a lot of movies from the 70s would be. I think it's still early enough uh, style-wise that it's not, you, you know, it's not, it's not going to be like a two-and-a-half-hour kind of slog. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it does does move slower than a modern action movie does, but I think that only makes it more effective when it picks up that pace. Mm. Like there's, it's steady, you know. Uh, and I think there's just an intelligence, and I think there's a reason that it has inspired so many other films. Uh, why it kicked off a whole genre in Italy? Uh, uh, they call them the Polichetti films. <laughs> where they're basically the spaghetti western, uh, Dirty Harry, uh, kind of a forerunner to Giallo. And I think that's like, it's just a really good example of why Clint Eastwood was, for the longest time, one of the biggest movie stars in the world, uh, without being, you know, the one of the glamorous sorts, and why he took over the uh, John Ray, the John Wayne kind of man's man uh, mm-hmm. mantle. I, I don't disagree with anything you've just said. And I think you really summed it up in the bit about how well this holds up. This movie is 44 years old at the, at the time we're recording and releasing this podcast. And uh, yeah, there are some films you go back 44 years and you, you can feel them. And this one though, it it doesn't feel that way. It feels like a timepiece of its era for sure. But it, the music, the cinematography, and the acting—it's not just Eastwood. It's everybody here, but particularly Eastwood leads this cast on a tour de force, and it is an amazing thing to watch and be a part of. Um, and it's something that I think needs to be seen. If you're a cinema buff, particularly if you like heist and crime films and stuff like that, if you're a Michael Mann fan, if you're into, you know, heat and that kind of stuff that we talked about earlier this year, and you haven't seen Dirty Harry or haven't watched it in a while, you owe it to yourself to watch it. It is one of those that needs to be seen. And uh, so I, I'm a fan of it. Yeah, it definitely lives on in Michael Mann, 
for oh, sure. Oh yeah, Espe- big, especially Heat. Yeah, big time. I mean, you could say, but if you're even if you're a fan of like Nolan and things like that, and the way he does things like Inception and and some of that stuff in Dark Knight, you will dig this movie. It's definitely for you. So check it out. It's totally worth it. And uh, extra large popcorn for me as well. Yeah, I'm really curious to see how well this goes as we go down this series. I don't I don't have particularly strong memories of you know what is to come in in the lines. There's one of them that really stands out in my head and it's the fourth one. It's not the fifth one. I don't even know it's not the one I snuck into the theaters for. Uh, but uh, but I I don't know what is coming with Magnum Force in particular the next one. I'm I'm curious <laughs> to to get back into that one. It's been a long time since I've watched it. But, you know, they turned around in two years and put another one out because they knew they had a hit on their hands. And uh, I can see why. I can see why people went for this at the time and why people still go for it today, for sure. Folks, thanks for joining us in this latest episode of Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, continuousplaypodcast.com. You can find links to our social media pages there. Leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think of the show and what you think of this particular episode. If you agree with us, disagree with us, always appreciate interacting with you and appreciate your support. Until next time, for Ron, I'm Jay. Thanks for listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is a property of their respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act Section 504C2, Title 17. 